it's funny. Like I said, I had uh, the huge fortune of, of watching these 700 households. And what I saw over and over and over, not only in their lives, but my life, was that if I was disciplined about, you know, when I got the trucks back to the shop every night, if I was disciplined about cleaning the trucks and getting everything organized for the next day, no matter what time I got in, when we started the next day, we got a jump on the next day and we had our free time. It cost me some sleep, but it didn't cause me problems the next day, right? And when I watched the families, the same thing I noticed. Unfortunately, in order to have a good life and have that time for creativity and have that time for yourself, um, you've got to have those guardrails. You've got to have that discipline. It can't just be uh, shooting from the hip of the pants and let's just have fun all the time and whatever's comfortable for it. And remember, the number one motivator, we've got to remember the number one motivator is the avoidance of discomfort. So the brain does not want to restock the truck at 11 o'clock at night. It doesn't want to get organized, but the brain wants to go to bed. The brain requires so much energy that the brain feels it is threatened when we're going to do something that's uncomfortable. Once you know that your human tendency is to avoid the very thing that's going to help you, then you can more likely overcome it. So look, uh, you're fooling yourself if you think you're just going to be motivated. Nobody's motivated. It's very rare. You be disciplined. You can get motivated by getting a date on the calendar. When a boxer puts a date on the calendar, the boxer becomes very motivated to train because the boxer doesn't want to get his ass kicked in the fight that's coming up in 90 days, right? If you're a bride and you're getting married and you've got a date on the calendar when that wedding is, all of a sudden you're extremely motivated to lose weight and look the best you can in that dress. I've seen it happen. I have a wedding business. Um, go down the list. When you have a date on the calendar, motivation becomes a little easier, but otherwise, it's all discipline. Friends of ours that happen to be twins have started a really cool online store called health.com. That's H-E-A-L-F.com. And the beautiful thing about this online store is they validate every product. So you know you're getting really good quality health-related products. Health have recently started stocking a food brand, which we love, called Organifi. And that's just started coming into the UK, where you can now access them on a speedy, free, next-day delivery. So no more long waiting times to ship overseas. And it's genuinely a super cool product. Yeah, I genuinely believe it is. I first tasted it when our friend Sam, he brought it over from the States. They were in his kitchen, and I remember tasting it and going, this stuff is delicious. It really, really is. They have various different superfood blends. They're all organic, great to have on the go. You simply put them in smoothies, water, or juice. And how do you take it? Like, what do you like? Uh, personally, I've taken the gold one the most. I take it before bed. It's almost like warm cocoa. Uh, it's got turkey tail mushroom. It's got reishi mushrooms and it's got turmeric and lots of other nutritious things. It really is like drinking warm, warm cocoa and my kids even drink it, which is great. The green one and red one are also great too. They're just pretty much superfood blends. Organifi is the name. Super convenient. I like the green one because we have our own organic wheatgrass farm and when I don't get to take our own wheatgrass juice, it's handy to have Organifi at hand. Anyway, if you do want to learn more about Organifi and their wide range of superfood blends, check them out on health.com. And for listeners outside of the UK and the US, this discount code HEALTHYPAIR is available direct on Organifi site, Organifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Yeah, thanks Mel for pressing this button. We're really grateful. I'm Dave. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah and Ralph. Yay! And the purpose of the Happy Pair podcast is really to inspire you and 
and to learn about more in life and to push your kind of predetermined norms to kind of realize that there's more possibility and there's more of life that we can all access to and follow it also your curios- curiosities oh, and good. it also has a selfish purpose as well too we get incredible we have incredible conversations with people who we greatly admire and uh, it's like today is life. another one of these yeah, yeah. it really is it's another mind blower so um, I wanted to ask you both would you consider yourself um, more masculine or feminine as I've got older, I'm moving more towards my feminine. And please define the two. Okay, well, I would think masculine is more... You, you would think or you do think? Okay, I do think that I think the masculine is more dominant by focus, you know, achievement, goal-orientated, decisive, efficient. These are masculine traits for me. Conquering, achieving goals, and whereas feminine is more nurturing, nourishing, together, healing. You know, those are typically it's the traits. It's patient. Are- it's, more, it's more compromising. It's more, it's softer. It's nurturing. It's holding. It's, it's beautiful. But remember when, um, before I told you I was pregnant and I didn't go for a run with you one morning and you, you said, oh, it's nice that you're tapping into your feminine side. What would you call feminine side there then? Feminine side. So like in terms of that, so just for anyone listening, it's feminine and masculine, not male and female we're talking yeah. about here. And <laughs> the, 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 you know, you think about the masculine, it's going out, you know, if you think hunter-gatherer days, they're out hunting, they're out chasing the food, while mm. typically the, 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 the feminine energy is minding or preparing the home and patiently waiting for the hope and the return of food. You know, these are the typical traits, not saying these are gender-based, but they're just energetically based. And in terms of you, you know, the fact that you weren't pushing and training with us and that which you're I actually, normally did which you normally would and she'd normally be out alphaing the biggest alpha <laughs> uh, yeah exactly but she she was actually resting and I being remember more Harold, and gentle I remember Harold goes to me at one point he's like the lads are going to figure out you're pregnant like you're not hanging out with them in the morning I was like no no Steve's got a cover for me he just thinks I'm tapping <laughs> I'm tapping into my feminine side it's great yeah, 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 totally. so you think Dave then since you've gotten older you've become more gotten older since I've gotten <laughs> I'm turning more into a classic <laughs> I saw that something. I'm not getting older. I'm turning into a classic. I classic. saw a t-shirt the other day. But you've been touched with your feminine side. That, that would imply that feminine side is a bit wiser now. Well, I, definitely. I would think the masculine, like as we said, as people may or may, you know, we grew up in, in a pack of male, 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 male energy. And I'd say the last 20 years has been, the first 20 years was definitely that alpha, alpha, male, male dominant. And the last 20 years has very much been about the journey to coming more into myself, which has been more about coming home and accepting myself and finding more peace and love where it's like no I don't need to jump off that cliff because Stephen's doing it and Sean's doing it and Ray's doing it yeah. it's okay just to sit here and you know. And I think the more we move into wholeness as as a species the more we can access both the masculine and the feminine within us all it's not to say either is better just certain situations require more masculine energy and some require more feminine energy and I think the more we can fluidly move between both the more adaptable we are and the more resilient we are as individuals I would, I would say something else to that I would say that the world is in you know part of the reason why the world is in such a state and the environment and capitalism yeah, and it's it's too much individualism masculine. it's got so much masculine whereas I think it could do it a lot more feminine a lot 100%. more nourishing and, yeah well Sean he wants to defend himself here now. every opportunity we've given you to jump off a cliff it has you've taken <laughs> just in case you didn't hear that uh, Sean he just said every opportunity that uh, Dave is uh, given to jump off a cliff he takes it I feel more accepting now yeah, though the idea of it makes you feel better I, sure. I feel better with, with it's a bit like I've got a choice now I feel like that there's more of a choice rather than an obligation uh, to and follow you guys, blindly because you guys are 
two of four boys growing and up. And went to all boys school, so really got in touch with our masculine. But it's as we get older, we're more learning more about the importance of the feminine side. But I, that, I, I, that to find, like in anything, there's night and day. The nature of dualities is good and bad, but they're equal parts of the same hand. And it's important if we do want to have a more robust, rounded hand and to experience more of life, the importance that we do access both sides of it and see and experience in the more we can actually move into hopeless. And I, I wonder, is creativity part of feminine more so than masculine? Because there's an element of patience and waiting and following the subtle whiffs. And I think creativity is such a wonderful journey to be on, to be following those curiosities and those little kind of, you know, the little, little subtle nudges that life tends to give you and you follow them and that's almost the creative process and I think that's more a feminine thing which certainly I've become more a lot more curious of that as I yeah. get older. I really like that. I remember you said to me before Steve about creativity also being it can be found in anything that like every expression is a form of creativity too. So even if you are someone who's like mad into ultra running there's How a creative element yeah. to that. Totally. How you dress. How you dress, how you do your hair. Yeah, totally. And I, I think today's podcast is epitomized by the masculine. Like, and I'm not saying like the male, it's the masculine. So Joe DeSena, who we're going to talk to, is just an absolute heroic archetype of the masculine energy. He does not quit. He will just grind it out. He is, his story is insane. And I think the main message that I get out, he describes happiness beautifully. I thought that was really, really beautiful. And I think he's a great reminder in terms of how to access into that more resilience. And I think, you know, it might be too masculine for many people. However, I think there's great learnings for everyone in it. There really is. Yeah, he's all about nowadays that we're living in such soft, comfortable lives and we really need to create more adversity, particularly for our children if we're having it and also in our own lives because we certainly didn't evolve where where we were sitting around on the couches watching Netflix eating chocolate bars. Life has been hard and there was obstacles as part of our daily practice and he really is all about consistently disciplined, showing up and disciplined and cultivating that muscle and growing it. And he is the personification. He's written three um, New York Times bestselling books. He started a number of businesses which he's bought and sold, one being a pool business, a pool and cleaning he's business. And for millions. So he's when, he was, when he was 18, by the time he was 18, it was a million dollar business. That's he Daisy, was also, that's, in case you're wondering what the barking is, that's Daisy just barking at a truck. He was by. also started a, a Wall Street Journal a business where he was trading. And then he's, he's the founder of Spartan Racing, which they... they about a million people a year um, race in these events in 45 different countries. And they're not like any races. No, they're these are insane. obstacle course races. So they're really designed for you to embrace discomfort. And it's really, they wouldn't have taken off if they weren't incredibly joyous. Yeah, and but incredi- also, w- one example of an obstacle is, wasn't there one of like uh, constructing something but with a... That's in the death race. In the uh, Spartan ones, it's more lifting boulders and going through mud. And like, uh, okay. as he said... On a Spartan race, you're going to cry, but as you finish, you're going to smile and be filled with joy that you will rarely feel. So I think, you know, pretty cool dude. I think his message is strong. It is hard. And I think there's a bit in it for everyone because it's it's so... It's universal. Yeah, anyway. Beautiful, beautiful. And it's very, very inspiring, man. I really hope you enjoy this and you get loads and out of it. And in it, he, he challenges us to a race. And it was quite, I was quite like, oh, the my death God. race. Yeah. So definitely that's worth hanging out And if here, anyone but, listening who does want to join the, the the death race, you'll find there's a, there's an email address. You can send it on and we can and you can join your application. And you can join who said he'd do it. Well, Shawnee, who's potentially, no, he's, <laughs> he doesn't look too convinced. <laughs> it's called podcast at the happy pairs of That's the email address. But anyway, without further ado, we give you the wonderful Joe DeSena, the fan founder of Spartan Racing. Okay, well, let, let's jump right into it because, um, like, you're, you've got the most incredible story, like you really do, and I'm sure you've told this story a thousand times or 10,000 times, but, like, 
to give a context to anyone listening, we have to touch on your story because it's it's just so monumental and it is, without discussing that, it doesn't give reference to who you are today. And to why you're such an incredible or exemplar of virtue, which is something that's rare in this modern age that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah, we've really enjoyed breaking you down or trying to break you down or get under the skin. Yeah, let's let's look under the hood. Do you want me to give a, a quick background? Yeah, yeah defo, defo, because we have to. That's just so such an incredible story. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Queens, New York. If anybody saw the movie Goodfellas, um, I grew up ground zero for Goodfellas, so literally right where that whole thing was taking place. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in was either organized crime or small business or, you know, a mixture of the two. And um, you don't know any better when you're growing up. You know, if you're a kid and you're living around a bunch of marathon runners, you become a marathon runner. Um, if you're living around a bunch of monks, you become a monk. You would aspire to be a monk. Um, so my friends and I all aspired to have Cadillacs and rolls of $100 bills in our pockets and we wanted to make money. If you didn't hustle in this neighborhood where I grew up, you were left behind. So I definitely learned how to hustle, how to sell, how to just drive forward no matter what. And then I think, you know, when I get asked this question, I think some of my attributes, this ability to just kind of dust off whatever the hell is going on on a daily basis, especially now coming out of COVID with this company has been just an absolute nightmare. Um, I think I'm able to dust off because as a kid, I saw folks go to jail or die, right? And, um, and so when somebody's going away for 25 years or more, you start to um, really appreciate daily problems. In other words, my problem could be a lot worse. I could be going away for 25, 30 years, right? So is, is my problem that bad? Whatever it is I'm dealing with today. So definitely got a, a, a fresh perspective um, on life. Uh, definitely got some hustle and kick in my step. And then I think in this neighborhood where, you know, folks were going away and disappearing, um, I questioned my own ability to be tough. Was I tough enough? You know, could I do it if I had to do it? Because that's what people did. Uh, I guess, again, if I grew up around a bunch of marathon runners, I, I'd be questioning if I could run 26.2 miles. So anyway, my mother who was seeking a different way, a different lifestyle. Her mother had cancer, early 1970s. She walked into a health food store to, I don't know, just see if there was something different, some way to get her healthy, her mom healthy, my grandmother. And she happened to meet a yogi. And that yogi had just flown in from India, uh, 70s or 80s years old, sitting in that health food store. and. Somehow he convinces my mom over an hour long conversation to give up raviolis and ganolis and cigarettes and that crazy way of life and instead start meditating, become a vegan and practice yoga. In an hour. Health food store that day and she literally throws the sausage and peppers out, kicks my grandfather and I out of the house because we were coming in to make some regular food, you know. And um, our lives changed forever. She divorces my dad. My dad doesn't want any part of it. I don't really want any part of it. My sister doesn't want any part of it. It's just too extreme, too wacky, too bohemian. Um, I want to be a wise guy. I don't want to be a monk. 
And um, mom is definitely not accepted in the neighborhood at all or with her family. So she picks up and moves to Ithaca, New York, upstate New York. She moves my sister and I, a much more forgiving place, much more open-minded, two big universities in Ithaca, bunch of hippies. And, um, and she starts practicing more yoga and she just takes on this lifestyle. I can't wait to get back to the neighborhood. Every summer I'm with my dad. My father's neighbor is the head of the banana organized crime family. He sees this, this riff going on in our family. And that first summer where I left Ithaca and I was with my dad, he says, Hey, why don't you come over and clean, clean my swimming pool? I'll pay you 35 bucks, you know? So the boss is calling. I'm showing up. I get there Saturday morning. He says, listen, before we get started, I'm going to teach you three lessons. Number one, on time is late. You're going to show up 15 minutes early. Number two, if you're going to clean the pool, you got to go above and beyond. You got to clean the lawn furniture, straighten up the shed, clean the windows, even though you're not getting paid for that. And number three, never ask for money, which was a little confusing because I was there to make money. But anyway, this guy guided me, taught me the ropes, took me under his wing, along with my father, giving me, you know, nonstop advice and my uncle and everybody else. And I built this business. Um, and I would go back and forth from Ithaca, New York to Queens to run this business. And uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. And uh, eventually I did end up going to college, which is a whole other story. Um, I ended up going to Cornell University. And you ended up, um, that pool business, like just the context is you started that age 11 and it was, by the time you would finish school, it was like a decent sized business. Yeah, I had 700 customers by the time I, I graduated school. Um, I was making really good money. Most of my customers were wise guys or like I said, business owners. I, I had access to every one of those households. Uh, in a very friendly way, I could walk into anybody's house, open the refrigerator, I could sleep over if I needed to crash somewhere because we were working late. And um, that gave me a, a, a bird's eye view into family dynamics, how people run their families. I saw husbands cheating on wives, wives cheating on husbands. I saw uh, drug problems. I saw kids that were not raised properly and went off the rails. I saw businesses fail. I saw people go away and saw people disappear. And um, at a young age, to see all that, it's, it's much better than going to university because I got to take some of the good, discard the bad, like Bruce Lee would say. And I thought, gee, when I have a family, I got to do more of this and less of that. So um, because I got to see it real time, it wasn't textbook. It was like really playing out over a decade in, in real life. Um, but it was a big business. And when I graduated university, I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. I own trucks and a building and backhoes and bobcats. And I'm hanging out with tough guys. And this is like, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm making money. Someday I'll get a house. And um, a friend of mine who I met in Ithaca, he, um, he took a liking to me. And he said, what do you do when you graduate? And I said, well, I'm going to run my business. And he said, well, you should consider going to Wall Street. And I thought that was ridiculous because, you know, the 1987 crash, lots of people lost money. And why would I go to Wall Street when I own this business? Anyway, 
for 48 straight months, 48 phone calls. He called me every month. I actually owe him a call today. <laughs> Bugged me to go to Wall Street for four years after graduating. Finally, on the 48th month, he got me to buy a stock. Um, and I made a lot of money in a 24 hour, 24 hour period. And I thought, oh my God, he's right. I got to go to Wall Street. I got I to gotta sell this business. So I sold my company to my employees and I packed up and I found a job on Wall Street. And um, I stumbled around for a couple of years learning the business and eventually um, broke out on my own and started a firm and, uh, and built that business for about 12 years and eventually sold that business. All during this, this journey I just described to you, during this entire journey, I, um, I found endurance races. I found crazy endurance challenges all over the world. And what I found was when I did them, when I participated in crazy stuff, 100-mile runs, 500-mile runs, going through waist-deep snow, navigating a country like Switzerland or you name it, um, I became at peace with myself. I, I no longer worried about all today's problems I focused on water food and shelter and um and that was a really nice quiet place to be so I I kept chasing it I kept doing races the crazier they were the more I wanted in I, I loved escaping reality and um by the year 2000 I thought you know I, I'd love to make a business out of this I'd love to put on events and help folks, you know, break out of their comfort zone and do crazy shit and experience what I'm experiencing. And so that was the, the first iteration of Spartan was back in 2000, 22 years ago. And um, I'm probably taking too long on, the, on answering this question, but that-, that there's, there's, there's so many it. areas you could take it in your life because there's, there's like, you've lived so many lives within one life that you could pick one area of your life, like that college career or like the- you know, the start of you becoming an endurance athlete before you had a family or your farm chapter. There's so many chapters that you go. If we went deep into it, there's, there's so much riches, like there really is. So, um, yeah, good good job at top-level highlights. Yeah. Okay, so so Spartan Races now, it's a massive, big global organization. You bought Tough Mudder, which was your competitor there in 20, just before COVID, really. And now you've got events going on in more than 50 countries now and millions of people every year do your events and your whole message is really to get people off the couch. Get them off the couch, get them watch, not watching Netflix and eating Twinkies and get them out there embracing discomfort. And that seems to be a core message of yours. Like, could you talk about the need? Like, because you're the personification of embracing discomfort and tackling issues head on. Like, for anyone listening, how, like, how discomfort, what, why is discomfort so important? Well, I think it's the time and age um, and, and place where we are in the world, certainly in the first world countries where it's important. I don't think it's as important if we were discussing it in a homeless shelter or the favela in Brazil or New Delhi. In other words, if this was 500 years ago and the three of us were sitting in a cave somewhere, I would be arguing that we should have more couches and more penicillin. I wouldn't be arguing that we need more discomfort because we live uncomfortable all day, every day. But today we don't live uncomfortable. Today we have way too much shit, way too much shit. And, um, and what's happened is we've lost our tolerance for pain. 
and we have tremendous expectations. So every day we expect all these things to happen. And when they, when they don't, we flip out because we can't tolerate not meeting our expectations. If the Wi-Fi doesn't work on the airplane, we lose our mind. If, um, you know, the coffee's not hot enough, we lose our mind. Uh, go down the list of things that piss us off on a daily basis. 500 years ago, we had a tremendous tolerance for payment and very low expectations. We, we just wanted the sun to rise. We just wanted to not get eaten by a lion, right? And so what I would argue for us, especially the three of us and anybody that lives in the first world in a cushy, soft, overstimulated, ridiculous fucking life that we have, um, I would say we need more cold showers. We need more burpees. We need more sweat. We need more uncomfortable. Because if we do that, if we manufacture adversity in our lives, we're going to start appreciating what we have. We're going to start to increase our tolerance for pain. So when the world gets shut down for two and a half years, and you can't put on races, like my reality, and you got 450,000 people circling your house wanting to kill you because they want their money back, you can deal with it. You don't give up. You don't tap out because you practice it. And so, um, so I, I would argue, you know, if you have a nice cushy bed and you're able to pay your utility bills and Amazon arrives at your house once a week, you have it way too fucking easy and you need to do something hard. Boom. I like that need to do something hard. Like even the essence of Spartan, you're coming from stoic kind of principles, the importance of embracing discomfort, the incurrence, like, as you said yourself, it was true, your endurance races that you found peace and it connected you back that we are animals. And we, although we live almost in the internet almost gives us access to our subconscious and to pursue all sorts of, you know, the kind of weird little fringes of society. But when we do get back to our simple mammal brain and we do get, fully present with what we're doing we're not caught up here wondering what's coming next we're fully using the fullness of ourselves there's almost something quite spiritual about it there's almost something quite like you're there's nothing else because you're just trying to survive and i think this is very much what you're about isn't it it's about just needing the fullness of yourself to the to the moment yeah you know if you could visualize a chart that I created, make believe everybody listening, make believe we're looking at a whiteboard and the top of the whiteboard is complete abundance. You're a multi-billionaire, you have everything. And the bottom of the whiteboard is you have nothing, zero. You're barely able to get water and food. And somewhere in the middle, right, is where you live and there's a horizontal line, that's where you live. Well, almost every one of us is chasing to get to the top of the whiteboard. We want to move from our line to the top of the whiteboard. We want um, another car. We want that girl or that guy we're chasing. We want more likes on Facebook. We want more people listening to our podcast. Whatever it is, we are chasing. It's above our line and it's closer to the top of the board. The reality is we're never going to be happy. Because no matter how much we move the line towards the top of the board, it's never enough. And then when you get to the top of the board, if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to get close to the top of the board, you have so much shit that you don't appreciate anything. So you're never happy. 
I would argue that we need to go towards the bottom of the board. We need to strip some things away, like you just described. And when you do that, kind of like pushing a football or a soccer ball underwater, when you go below that line and you push that ball underwater, when the ball comes back to the top of the water, it's happy. It was hard down there. I had to sleep in the rain. Those burpees sucked. That cold shower was awful. When I get back to that line, I appreciate everything I have. So maybe I got a taste for it because I saw guys go to jail and come out and be so appreciative when they got, you know, maybe that's why I learned this. Maybe my mother teaching all those ancient, you know, Indian principles coming out of yoga and meditate. You know, maybe that's where I learned it, but like, or maybe it was the races, maybe doing the races and just being so fucking miserable and then getting to the finish line and saying, my God, that is the best grape that I've ever eaten. It wasn't the best grape I've ever eaten, but, but it felt like it because I hadn't had any food in two days, you know? So I don't know if that's a good visual or not, but that's the way I think about it. Well, it's great perspective. Like it's, it's a very fresh perspective on it. And it kind of also makes me think that like here you are, somebody who's come from Queens, from, as you said, ground zero of Goodfellas, you know, and you've come from below average on that chart, as you were saying, and now you've got children. You've got four kids. You've got a wife. You've, you know, you've bought and sold businesses. Your kids are growing up in a different environment that you have. And I'd love for you to talk and tell stories about how you've, manufactured adversity or how you've made sure that your kids don't become because typically what happens in a family business like the first generation build it and they work really hard and they build a business and the next generation come along and they just kind of ruin it that's that's like you know there's a, a story about it because they didn't earn the money and they just spend it and i just love to hear your perspective on how you make sure that your kids aren't soft and sit and watch netflix all day eating twinkies well listen um i think my kids are soft um, they, it's hard to have them grow up the way I grew up or the way you grew up to have your kids. Right. So that's going to be hard. So anything I do is, is somewhat fake and phony. Um, but the boys wrestle and they're on the mat every day, twice a day. And it, it's hard, hard work. Um, but they're not in the neighborhood and they're not seeing their friends go to jail. Um, they're studying Mandarin every day. I didn't know a second language. Uh, no one. No one wanted you to learn Italian. You, you, you shouldn't speak Italian, speak English. And, um, and so it's hard to learn Mandarin for sure, second language. But, but again, they live in a nice house. The bills are paid. There's food on demand. Uh, do they work hard? Sure, they work hard. Um, and, and they've got good grades. But if, if, I, if I was really, if I was really, really good at this and I was really committed, we would be living in a New Delhi uh, or we'd be in a favela in Brazil um, because I think that would be the best thing for our kids. Like, I think, I think you're doing your kid a disservice if you're successful and the kid has everything at their fingertips. And even a guy like me who's pushing hard, my eight year old, when he was eight, he ran the Boston marathon. My seven year old ran the uh, New York marathon. My six year old ran one of our beasts in, in Indonesia. I picked my family up. They lived all over the world. But again, we, we haven't lived in tents. We're not starving for food. So, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but it's manufactured. It's a and then very what do you say to someone who kind of 
who really buys into the kind of need for comfort and the need for kind of spoon, you know, a silver spoon to their child. What do you, you know, I, I can totally see your perspective and I really admire the importance of discipline and the importance of bestowing a sense of virtue and appreciation for things to your children. However, for someone who kind of came from hardship and wants to give their children comfort, what do you say to that? Well, I would say 99.9% of um, the population who can, the parents who can, lean that way. Every parent leans toward this. It's just natural to give your child more and shut them up, satisfy them. Um, the number one motivator for us as parents or human beings in general, the number one motivator is the avoidance of discomfort. It's very uncomfortable to push your children. It's very uncomfortable to push yourself. So every parent is leaning towards easy, faster, quiet, leave them, you know, like just shut them up. And, and the best analogy I can come up with for the parents that maybe they'll understand, but I doubt they'll do anything about it because I've had 10 million people do our races and I've had lots of conversations with parents. Um, imagine if we had two children, let's say you two guys, you each have different children. And your children, in my analogy, are plants. And one of you decides to raise your plant, raise your child in a greenhouse. And the temperature is perfect every day. And the plant is watered on demand. And it has fertilizer. Everything is perfect. The soil's perfect. And the other one of you decides to raise your child out on the side of the mountain. And that plant grows roots around a rock. And that plant deals with storms every day. Both plants survive. One has a more miserable upbringing than the other. What happens when we're both gone, when you two guys are gone, two dads are gone, and those plants now have to go make it on their own? That greenhouse plant, that Park Avenue kid, that spoon-fed, is fucked. It's not prepared for the real world. So that's the way I think about it. And, um, and that doesn't mean instinctually, I don't want to go sit down and have a great meal on Park Avenue with my kids. I do. I'm human too, you know? Um, but we definitely have to look in the mirror and make sure that they're getting their dose of toughness, their dose of reality. They're being pushed. They're made uncomfortable. Listen, at 6 a.m. this morning, I was calling to see if my boys were up and at practice. That's ridiculous. I should have let them fail, right? If they, if they didn't set their alarm and they weren't smart enough, they should have just failed and mispracticed and got yelled at by the coach. So even me, who talks a tough game, I'm weak in this area. So I can't even imagine a normal person, uh, how they parent. Yeah, parenting's not an easy job because your instinct is, as you said, like, you know, we've got five kids, um, not together, but between us. And our our instinct, your instinct is always to kind of wrap them up and mind them and look after them and, oh yeah, can I do anything for you? So I think your perspective of going, well, how do we train them for life? How do we make them resilient and make them tough? So that like, and it's that perspective that like we, we have a sprout farm and we grow, we've got two farms and one of them, we grow a lot of pea sprouts. And to make peas really grow well, you put a weight on top of them because it makes them grow much harder because they actually push against it and they develop deeper roots and they end up greener. There's more chlorophyll developed. And I think it's probably the exact same for us as humans, but maybe our culture and our society is much more leaning towards how do I cater for your needs? How do I, you know, how do we... Dumb you down, shut you yeah, up. Yeah, but I, 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 your, your perspective is like, it's a much more... Um, 
the, the, the quintessential kind of patriarch or the quintessential father role from the 1800s nearly or something where it's discipline and duty and almost military kind of in its sense. And it's also, I think it's such a refreshing message that I feel is so valuable. We were yeah. 100%, we're 100% alignment and I'm going to use the, um, the pea sprout story. I like that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, yeah, you, you literally put a, put a cover right on top of them and it kind of keeps them down and then they, you know, give them another day and they grow twice as quick. So it actually, you know, works really, really well. Um, can I talk briefly about the importance of discipline? Because the irony, so we grew up, a friend of ours, and I saw you on a show recently, Chris Evans um, in the UK. Chris is an extremely creative guy. We grew up and we were kind of watching him on TV and he was just this amazingly, just so lit and so creative and like all over the place because he just, he was just so sharp and so on it. And then recently we went and hung out with him. We went running with Chris and we were kind of spending a bit of time together he was talking about how his life is so like disciplined and so structured. And he was kind of saying, without that structure, I can't be creative. And it's like almost this paradox that we need boundaries. We need discipline. We need edges. And without these edges, there's just a whole load of middleness. And I wonder, can we just talk briefly about discipline and the importance of it? Because it's something that it's not a virtue that we celebrate in modern day society. It was back in the, you know, the fifties or sixties, it was like character, spine, courage, you know, let's be people of substance. It's funny. Like I said, I had uh, the huge fortune of, of watching these 700 households. And what I saw over and over and over, not only in their lives, but my life, was that if I was disciplined about, you know, when I got the trucks back to the shop every night, if I was disciplined about cleaning the trucks and getting everything organized for the next day, no matter what time I got in, if I got in at 11 o'clock at night, and I got to be up at 5 a.m. If I was disciplined about getting everything organized and restocked, when we started the next day, we got to jump on the next day and we had our free time. It cost me some sleep, but it didn't cause me problems the next day, right? And when I watched the families, the same thing I noticed. The guys that stayed at the office late and then went out for, you know, with the boys for drinks or whatever and came home maybe a little drunk. And then maybe got in a fight with their wife in the morning because the kids were late for school because the husband got up late because they didn't have that discipline the night before. Everything went off the rails the next day. And then that became magnified and more magnified. And who knows, maybe a person loses their job over it. Maybe they lose their marriage over it. So um, unfortunately, in order to have a good life and have that time for creativity and have that time for yourself, um, you've got to have those guardrails. You've got to have that discipline. It can't just be uh, shooting from the hip of the pants and let's just have fun all the time and whatever's comfortable for And Remember, the number one motivator, we've got to remember the number one motivator is the avoidance of discomfort. So the brain does not want to restock the truck at 11 o'clock at night. It doesn't want to get organized, but the brain wants to go to bed. The brain requires so much energy that the brain feels it is threatened when we're going to do something that's uncomfortable. And um, once you know that, once you know that your human tendency is to avoid the very thing that's going to help you, then you can more likely overcome it. So look, uh, you're fooling yourself if you think you're just going to be motivated. Nobody's motivated, very rare. You be disciplined. You know, you do, you can get motivated and think about the business I'm in. You can get motivated by getting a date on the calendar. 
when a boxer puts a date on the calendar, the boxer becomes very motivated to train because the boxer doesn't want to get his ass kicked in the fight that's coming up in 90 days, right? Um, if you're a bride and you're getting married and you've got a date on the calendar when that wedding is, all of a sudden you're extremely motivated to lose weight and look the best you can in that dress. I've seen it happen. I have a wedding business. Um, go down the list. When you have a date on the calendar, motivation becomes a little easier, but otherwise it's all discipline. Do you think we should always have a date in the calendar then? You always got to have a date on the calendar. Um, if that weren't true, um, universities would not need professors. Construction sites would not need foremen. Um, people would just naturally hit all their targets and all their dates, but nope, got to have a date on the calendar. Good one. Yeah, because humans... Try to get a construction job done without a finished date that everybody's got to be held to. Watch what happens. <laughs> There's a principle, right? A gas will expand to the size of its tank. So um, you'll just miss dates. You know what I mean? Doesn't, doesn't, there, there's no consequence. Yes, I like that. Does he, even on that story, like we swim in the Irish Sea every morning uh, at sunrise and have done for nearly a decade. And I'd say 99% of the days we go down there, I don't want to get in the sea. Like the same story goes in my head. It goes, why do we do this? It's so cold. This is stupid. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I'm taking off my clothes. Oh, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And I get in the sea and then I go, woohoo, this is amazing. I feel incredible. You know, and, and it's, it's the same discipline. It's like motivation. People see us as motivating. It's like, that ain't motivation. That's just, I know I'm meeting Stephen. I know I'm meeting the lads. I know it makes me feel good. I'm not doing it because of motivation. I'm just doing it. In spite of the prattle in my head, I'm just doing it anyway. That's so, a thousand, thousand percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Uh, okay, well, let, let's jump into practicals here because we could camp out in so many different things. So food and alcohol, do you drink? No, last night I was at a wedding. Um, one of my, so, my social guy, we had a wedding on our farm, my farm that I described earlier, um, where, where I, we book weddings for people. And um, there were a bunch of, we had about a hundred people at the wedding. And there were his brother and a bunch of folks who were really, they were young guys that were really fun to be around. It was about 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. It was early in the night. And um, they had drinks flowing. And I said to them, listen, why don't you meet me at 5 a.m. tomorrow? We'll hike the mountain before I leave for Boston. And um, they said, yeah, 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 100%. 5 a.m. We'll meet, we'll meet, whatever. Drinks kept flowing and they kept pushing drinks on me. And I said, look, I don't really drink. I'll have a sip because I think it's the right thing to do because my friend is getting married, but I don't really like the taste. There's really no upside for me. I don't like feeling fucked up. And, um, and I know I got to get up at five in the morning, right? Again, I want to be disciplined. And so sure enough at 5 a.m., I was up and ready. No one showed up. So um, no, I don't really drink. <laughs> Good one. Okay, food. What about food? What does the great Joe DeSena feed himself? And what's your thoughts, your philosophy? Because obviously your mom was uh, way ahead of the time in terms of vegan, yoga, all that type of stuff. Your dad's an Italian kind of, you know. And then, then Spartan, almost like the kind of diet that almost is intertwined with Spartan is this kind of paleonic kind of carnivore, meat, carnivore style diet is often in these circles. I'm not saying it is, but it's often. What are you eating? What's your philosophy in terms of food? So I, I would sum it up in a couple of sentences. I would say more water, more salad, 
Um, by the way, I said to my wife recently, and she thinks I'm nuts. I said, listen, why don't we simplify our choices at dinner? Uh, the salad that I absolutely love that we can't screw up. It's the best salad ever is a cucumber salad. It's cucumber chop, onions, maybe a little dill, apple cider vinegar, black olives. Boom. That's it. Make it super simple. So I would say more salad. I like quinoa over rice. I could eat quinoa every single day. If I was stuck on an island every single day, I could eat cucumber salad, three meals a day. I could eat quinoa three meals a day. I could eat steamed broccoli with garlic three, three, three meals a day on an island for the rest of my life. And then I'm not afraid of a burger without the bun. I would have the patty. I would have a piece of salmon. Um, yeah, I might, I might have some spicy tuna or whatever, but I would say whether it's tuna or salmon or that burger in that example, that animal protein is only 20% of my diet. Like, again, I could live on that island forever without it. Um, I don't do that's not what I lean toward. I lean towards that salad, that broccoli, and that quinoa. Mm. And what about sleep? Well, for most of my life, I would argue that I'd sleep when I'm dead. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really get a bunch of sleep, but, but now I tend to, I tend to need, let's see, I got in bed last night about eight 30. I was up at four 30. So I, I need about seven, eight hours. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good that's answer, good Joe. Bang on the head. Can uh, I can I move it into resilience? Because this is you've just recently written a book, the ten, the ten rules for resilience, and it's largely a parenting book, which you you kind of join forces with a a psychologist, and it's you know I, from what I've heard and I've looked at it, it's brilliant. I think it's great. I think it's a great message to try to build more resilience because it's something. It's a word that's often thrown around, but it's not really understood. And I wonder if you could just talk about resilience and what it means to you, because to me, you're a pillar of resilience and you're someone that's, the word has evolved in your kind of understanding of it. I heard you talk about that in the past. Yeah, for me, the word just means it's that ability to um, get punched in the face over and over and over and just somehow dust off and put the cleats back on and get back in the game. Um, that's, that's really to me. And some days you don't even know why you're doing it, but you just, you just do it. You just get back up and in the game. And, and I believe the difference between, you know, quitting and getting back up in the game, that, that resilience is a derivative of how much you practice adversity, how you grew up, what kind of glasses you wear through life, what your perspective is, right? Like if you, if you have a higher tolerance for pain and lower expectations, you're more resilient. I was talking to a friend this morning. I got to go to Eastern Europe tomorrow. I think I might be flying tomorrow. I just came up out of nowhere. Geez, you're moving around a lot, Joe. You have no idea. Um, and he said, we're going to fly first class. And I said, that's ridiculous. Why would we fly first class? Joe, I'm not sitting in the back of the plane or whatever. And, and so I think just that mindset um, makes you less resilient. You know what I mean? If you, if you have a mindset where you could just, I remember once in a race, we, we slept in the rain. I mean, torrential downpour. It was rain. It had to be raining straight for 18 hours, or at least it felt like it. And um, there was no way out. We had no tent. It was <laughs> sleeping in the rain. If you do it, now you got to practice it, right? You got to practice that adversity. If you do, you do it enough, you get up in the morning, you get in that ocean 
like you described, that cold water, um, you just you start to build that resiliency muscle. Yeah, I think it's so important. It's a skill that's not taught, unfortunately, in modern day. In, in terms of quitting, you mentioned they're quitting, and you talk, you often talk about how people can get started because often people just find it hardest to get going for anyone listening here who's kind of struggling to get started i've often heard you talk about three things that people can do to kind of get going fire ready aim because i like i love that we, me and shawnee were talking so shawnee's uh, here and he kind of produced the podcast with sarah and he was he often there was someone there who's really loves to consider and ponder and really think about every ankle before they start and i love your analogy and it's something that often i've been uh, given the the analogy fire ready aim like as in just start don't think too much just get going and you're clearly someone who learns by doing. Many people learn by thinking and looking around it. I wonder if you could talk about your philosophy of fire, ready, aim, because I love it. Yeah, you know, listen, I think a lot of us, most of us, again, given, given that at our core, we want to avoid discomfort, um, we will spend as much time as we allow ourselves to pontificate and just the beat. Why, why not we should do something we'll analyze it to death all in an effort to avoid actually doing it and so what i found in life was um i'll analyze it on the way i'll just start doing the thing i'm going to eastern europe it's not in it's not in my plan i was supposed to be in sparta on thursday my wife is expecting me back home that's it i committed I'm going to Eastern Europe tomorrow, and now I'll just figure it out. Literally, that happened this morning. I'll figure it out between now and tomorrow how I'm going to do it. Otherwise, I can sit around and talk about it, and before you know it, I missed my flight. So um, just a big believer in, in just starting and forcing and nudging and, and fig figuring it the fuck out on the way. Hmm. Yeah, good analogy. Okay, we were discussing this earlier, me and Steve, and we were going for a walk. We were saying, okay, Joe, you're the, you're the epitome of masculinity. Like, you really are. You're all about discipline. You're all about embracing discomfort. You run hundreds of miles. You do these crazy races. You're, you're the most disciplined, like, incredible, almost machine-like in a sense. And we were discussing and going, okay, well, what about your feminine side? Because all of us are made up of masculine and feminine. And I just wondered, how do you express your feminine? Or is it something you've kind of... You know, because you do have, even with your parenting style, you're very much about, you know, discipline and encouraging these go-getter type diversity. masculine virtues. And I wondered, what about the feminine? Do you ever kind of explore that side of yourself or do you ever express it? Or am I talking crap? Yeah, on Saturdays, I wear a dress and a wig. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Listen, I found a wonderful wife. I have two beautiful daughters and they handle the feminine side. Like, I, I don't, I just don't lean that <laughs> I, I, um, it would be, it's just not natural for me. Um, I, I, I'm not great at hugging. I'm not great at, um, yeah, I just not, it's not, it's not me. I'm not sitting on the beach holding hands. It doesn't mean I don't think it's good. I'm just not wired that way. And so I could fight it and I guess I could get out of my comfort zone and do more of it. But, um, I got a wonderful wife and daughters to handle that side. <laughs> Joe, you're great. That's a nice one. That's I really nice like one. that. Uh, thoughts on another thing we were discussing earlier was, so David Goggins is another character. You're almost like, you have elements of that man, 
but your much more family friendly version of David Goggins. And I wonder what are your perspective for anyone who doesn't know David Goggins, he's this Navy SEAL kind of the epitome of, you know, if Joe's level 100, David Goggins is kind of the 101 in terms of discipline. Now, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not you're just you're very different creatures, but he's a very determined, driven you know, all about discipline and structure and whatever. And I wondered what your perspective is in terms of him. Uh, David and I have met each other a bunch. Um, I love him. He is, um, he's definitely the unmarried version of, of, um, you know, and, and he has a huge, a huge advantage and huge pedigree um, being a Navy SEAL. Um, He's, he's, he's what I would have loved to be had I not gotten married, not built this large organization, then like he's the bachelor version, version if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because I could definitely see similarities. Like you're both cut from the same stone in a sense. Uh, okay, I'd love you to talk uh, briefly about your death race because that's just such an incredible, crazy, and obviously it's the birth of Spartan. Spartan is the races which Joe's company puts on and Tough Mudder and all the other races, but they all kind of culminated out of your death race, which was a crazy idea on your farm in Vermont. Could you tell that story? Because it's just brilliant. I will, but I want a commitment from, from you two that you're going to round up a bunch of people, no charge. We're going to give, we're going to give you till the middle of November or December 1st, if you want. And uh, you tell me how many people I'm going to give them free entry to this year's death race on the farm, which is the end of June, beginning of July, 2023. So can we commit to that? <laughs> you are wonderful. Oh, geez. I don't know. When would we I, when will you know? Well, I like that. I know can... it's an hour never. So I, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want that date in my calendar because I know we're running other things right then. Can I, can I um, make it a little easier, the decision? Yeah. Um, the event will run somewhere between, you know, 60 and 80 hours. Um, all I would ask of you guys is to, you and your team, whoever you round up, you could bring 20 of your listeners and um, all, no charge, just come to the farm. Uh, all you got to do is just go through the paces for 24 hours. It's not the fear of doing it. That bit would be the fun, but it's just making the time. In terms of priorities can we find people in your audience then that represent you definitely yeah, yeah. hell yeah good there's a good one okay so if anyone listening wants to take part take up on joe's offer send us an email and we'll rally and see if we can make it happen in our diaries and our family lives and if we can make it a priority but send an email podcast at the happy so there we go we've got a direct i like your style joe and if you can't if you can't do it, then then somebody that chimes in has to be the leader and representative for you. Deal. You're okay. in. We're looking at Shawnee now over the other side of the room. Shawnee, any interest in the death race? Okay, okay we, okay, got, we, we got, got, got a possible we got yes a loop over here from yeah, here Shawnee. in the corner here. So we'll see. It could be Shawnee and Ray. So the death race came from you know, I was in that race I described to you where it rained and rained and rained and we were just cold for 12 plus days. And um, this is going to sound crazy, but, but it's true. A couple of weeks later, I went and did an Ironman in Lake Placid, New York, and it was pouring rain, similar to what I had just experienced for 12 days straight. I did not notice it was raining didn't even notice because like my body, my brain had just adapted 
to what I went through two weeks earlier. In that event, at that Ironman, there were hundreds of people dropping out because of the rain. And it wasn't my ego saying this at all. I was, I was really just thinking of the science. I thought, gee, the name here of this event, it doesn't say Ironman unless it's raining. It just says Ironman. I don't understand why people would, would be dropping out. It's just rain. You don't drown in the rain. And in fairness, I was, I was trained for the rain because of what, what had just happened to me two weeks earlier. So I had an advantage. During that event, I started thinking as I was watching this unfold, I got to create an event that actually turns your life upside down. It's one thing if you know that every mile you're going to have an aid station, there's going to be water and chips and things. But it's another thing if I purposely take your bike seat away and expect you to ride 100 miles. Or I tell you, you got to chop wood, but you have no axe. Or um, I plant a person in the race, a participant, that's meant to break you and you don't know it. They're a plant. Right? They're, they're, they're operating next to you during the race and they're purposely chirping in your ear to quit. That would be an amazing race because that would emulate life. That would make people more resilient, more gritty. If you could finish that event, you could pretty much do anything in life. You get to meet yourself. And so um, the death race was born on, on that premise. And you know, 20 years later, we're putting it on on the farm. People are still pissed off about it because very few people actually earn their skull getting across the line. And it's usually the most unlikely participant that finishes. And it's not the big muscular uh, military um, pedigree person. That it's, it's some young girl. It's a business guy. It's just the person that could shut their ears off, not listen to themselves or anybody around them and put one foot in front of the other and get to the damn finish line. And what type of character shows up to it? Like, is it, do a lot of these kind of hard guys show up or tough guys? Or is there like, like what's the stereotype character? Do you get everyone? Everyone, somebody missing a leg, a 17 year old boy that says he's tough, a uh, 65 year old guy, a, a woman that is having a tough time getting pregnant and is just working through that issue in her personal, like you just name, it's every size and shape. And any com what's the commonality between people finishing? Because that just sounds like absolutely fascinating. Are there any commonalities? I think the commonality, when I look at the finishers, especially those that crush it and come across the line, they, like I said, they just have that ability to just shut everything around them off and put blinders on and put one foot in front of the other. And they're just staying in the present. Like you'll often say, when, when people are going to quit, it's like, just let's get to that lamppost. Okay, let's get to that le next lamppost. And it's someone that has that ability to be like, almost like, you know, quite uh, monk-like in the ability to be totally present and just, let's just one foot in front of the next. And let's just keep the show on the road. I love the excuses I get in this event. The so many grandmothers die right before the event. They can't show up because their grandmother died the night before. And then in the middle of the event, everybody's got a, a logical excuse about how they've decided um, they, they don't um, need to do this anymore because um, 
They just can't find the purpose in it that they used to have when they were training and like all nonsense. If they listen to themselves on what they tell me or tell the team, it's such ridiculous bullshit. Um, and I'll say to them, shut up and just do what I tell you to do. And if you do it, you will finish this thing. And like I said, such a small percentage actually can do it. And so is it, is, is it largely like it's running, it's jumping, it's swimming, it's chopping logs. It's, I, I heard one time it was assembling a wheelbarrow with Japanese instructions. Like it's, it's just, and at times you said it was like, people just start, like they show up and it's like, oh, so it starts tomorrow. No, it starts now. Like you're literally there to screw with people. Yeah, yeah. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Sounds like hell. If you have children, I have a death camp that occurs before the death race. So this year what I'm going to do is parents can bring their kids to the death camp. And then the last day of the death camp for the kids is the first day of the death race. So the parents and the kids get to see each other doing hard shit um, together, which is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, that's just... You are hardcore. You really, really are. You are... I really, Mr. Ad- Hardcore. I really admire. Okay, okay. Um, as we're starting to wrap up, so, so, so you've ran so many ultras. You've ran. You've been. You've shown up to life day in, day out. You've built businesses. You've, you know, you've traveled the world. You've, you've, you've got pushed so hard. You've met yourself at so many times. Like, what are a few of your underlying principles? This is obviously show up, keep moving. Like, what are things that like, if you were writing your book, your like your omen, like what are, what is your kind of little mantra which you, which you'd pass on to others? What's Joe DeSena's philosophy, I guess? Yeah, I guess a couple of sayings you brought up, right? Fire, ready, aim. Like, because you don't want to get to the end of your life. I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, I should have done more. Um, so definitely just keep doing. I would say um, it could always be worse. Like uh, just always remember that perspective, no matter where you are, no matter how bad it is, it could be worse. You could be, you could be doing a 25 year bid in prison. Right. And then I would say, I love Winston Churchill saying like, never, ever, ever, ever give up. So um, fire ready aim. It could always be worse. And no matter what, you don't give up. Yeah, powerful. I like them. There's a question from someone, but I can't really read it. No, I want to just ask about the importance of social accountability. When you talk about not quitting or kind of getting started, you'll talk about baby steps. You'll talk about putting something in the diary, but then you'll often talk about shouting from the rooftop, like telling everyone so you're held accountable. I wonder if you can talk about the importance of social accountability and that almost like you got to recreate this requirement for you to do what you said you'd do. Yeah, like, listen, when I talk to guys like you, I continue to shout the same story over and over because I'm a work in progress. We're, we're all a work in progress. And so the more I tell everybody who I am and how I live and what I stand for, uh, the more likely I will adhere to what I'm saying. If, 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 I, if I just think it uh, in, in, in the privacy of my own home, well, then I could break the rules and nobody will know, right? I found that as soon as I told people uh, you had to get an article in a newspaper that you're going to be doing the death race and you plan on finishing. It was a mandate to start the race. You had to get an article in the newspaper saying that. All of a sudden, grandmothers stopped dying. We were saving so many grandmothers. People actually started showing up because they were socially accountable. The neighborhood where that article was written um, shined a spotlight on them 
and they're going to be embarrassed if they come back and say, well, you know, my grandmother died. I couldn't make it. Like, no, suck it up. No, it's humble. You're going to look like an idiot if you don't do it. Remember that bride in my example, that bride in that groom, there's going to be friends and family there. They want to look good in that dress and that tuxedo. There's a date in the diary, there's social accountability. Yeah, I like the date in the diary. Can you read that last question there? How do you deal with, so there's a question, Joe. How do you deal with your children's emotions when they come at you with a problem? And when you can't just go, suck it up, get on with it. Do you just pass them over to your wife? You know, I, I pushed too hard with one of my kids um, a year and a half ago. And um, I definitely pushed too hard. I, I lost my mind a little bit and, and he started to tear up. And I, at least I, I, I'm proud of myself that I was able to backtrack and say, hey, back up. You know, at the end of the day, I love you to death. I'd do anything for the four kids, uh, for my wife, for my you know, extended family and friends. Um, but even I'm human, right? Even, even I'll, I'll, I'll go too far at times. So um, you got you to balance it, right? Because, because you got to recognize that that kid might learn to become emotional in order to get out of something because they can't help themselves. Their brains want to avoid discomfort. So uh, you've got to ascertain whether you've pushed too far, whether they're in a real danger, or if it's just the brain saying, you know, kicking and screaming, I don't want to do that. So 75, 80% of the time, it's like, stop complaining. Yes, I know it's hard. Get the fuck up. We're going to work out because that's what we do. It's like brushing your teeth. But there's a few instances where you, you got to back off. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah nice. it's a delicate balance. It's a tough one. Joe DeSena, you are, you are a rare kind. I really admire your work. I admire your message. And, um, you know, I think if anyone listening wants to learn more about creating kind of more adversity in your life, Spartan is, a, is an incredible. I wonder, can you tell people about Spartan and Tough Mudder? Because I, I, recently you bought out Tough Mudder, which is massive. And someone who runs a business, I go, that's brave. That's huge. What a risk. How's that working out for you? Mm, well, I mean, we are definitely on our back foot, not because of Tough Mudder, but because of the pandemic. The pandemic um, was a punch in the face for Mike Tyson. We got shut down in 45 countries. We, we lost, now we know we lost about $50 million, which we didn't have. And it's been um, scraping and clawing and just hanging on by fingernails. But we're putting on great events all over the world. We'll still have about 1.1 million people this year participate. Um, we still got a lot of work to do to get back on offense. Um, the U.S. government, funny enough, owes us a bunch of money from some tax refunds and things. So I'm killing myself trying to get that funding in. Uh, and then we owe a bunch of like it's this is this is definitely uh, the universe testing me because I tested all of you. So the universe is just making sure that I'm as tough as I say I am. Wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. And <clears throat> the Spartan events happen like in most countries and people can just find out on Spartan.com or toughmother.com and Yeah. Yeah, let let everybody know that if they if they're believers in the pair, um I'll give a bunch of free entries to all your customers or whatever. Come out and see what a Spartan and a Tough Mudder is all about. It's very addictive. It's more addictive than vanilla ice cream. Um, once you get a taste of uh, how awesome finishing something hard is, um, you, you, you just keep doing it. You end up bringing all your friends. We want to be the house of hard. We want to be the Louis Vuitton of just tough shit. Um, 
And so we'll be a bunch of brands. Uh, La Ruta is our mountain bike brand. Uh, M2O is our paddleboard brand. We've got Spartan Trail. We've got DECA. We've got Spartan and Tough Mudder. All uh, unique challenges that just get you way outside your comfort zone and get you to cry, but then get you smiling at the finish line. Wow. Fair play, Joe. You're brilliant. Yeah, hopefully we see you someday. Yeah, maybe that that debt race, I'll I'll leave it my... I'm not committing to it because if I commit to it, I want to deliver it, especially to you. Uh, so uh, we, we'll get back to you, but Shawnee's going to be the, the holder of it at the moment and we'll get back to you, you know, because we, as we've said... If you want, just to give you one more little appetizer to motivate you, we could even set up a podcast room for you there and we can get everybody participating as one of the challenges to come in and and, and uh, take part in your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Right. I'll explore it. I'll get oh, back to you. About I'm one. not committing to it officially, but I'll, I'll explore it. And I, you're we wonderful. Will, we will keep you posted, but you're, you're wonderful. You're, you're very refreshing and your message is wonderful. And I, yeah. I really admire Spartans. Where are you physically located? Ireland. Ireland. So, so we're just south of Dublin. Yeah. You ever over this way? You know our boys um, that create the Ram Rollers? No, I've heard the Ram of them. Rollers. All right. Well, so the Ram Roller, Spartan Ram Roller is a, um, it's, it's a roller. If you can envision, envision a rolling device to roll out your legs, but it's weighted. It's made from recycled rubber. Um, and we produce those in Ireland. Um, I got to connect you with the boys. Wow. Cool. Brilliant. Yeah, love love to see. yeah, sounds great. The Ram Roller. Are you ever over this way? Um, I am. Who knows? You're, you're everywhere. I'm everywhere. Do me a favor and um, shoot me an email, joe at spartan.com. Anybody could always email me, joe at spartan.com, and I'll connect you with the Ram Roller boys. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll send okay, you one cool. Joe, you're a legend. Really appreciate taking the time. Keep being that rock of just character. Holding and us all accountable. That so many of us aspire to be. So, uh, yeah, keep being you. Your message is brilliant, and I think you're so important. See you, boys. I thought that was amazing. I was this was a, a conversation I was so excited about listening, and it's fascinating just to to talk to Joe and just to kind of like hang out with him there, and just to see that he really is this masculine archetype. Yeah, I think the bit which drilled on most to me was his definition of happiness that he kind of said instead of so many of us are trying to move up the pecking order and get more stuff and accumulate more stuff. And in his experience, having accumulate quite a bit of stuff, it's about letting go of stuff and getting rid of stuff and simplifying our lives because difficulty and obstacles are just a natural part of life and how we can become move through these more fluidly and accept them and just get on with it, the more happier we're going to be because comfort ultimately doesn't lead to happiness. So I thought it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, so really. yeah, do check him out. He's got three international best-selling books. Um, Spartan races are cool. A yeah. friend of ours, Thomas LeBlanc, uh, super cool French dude. He worked with Sparta. I think he still does, but he worked with him about eight years ago and he used to live in Greystones and great friend and such an amazing human so and if anyone does want to take part in the death race let us know send us an email podcast at thehappypairs.ie we need some happy pair representatives oh yeah we need some death race some death race representatives representing us so if anyone's interested we'll provide you with t-shirts we'll provide you whatever and come and uh, yeah join our team pesto and hummus and food and cookbooks (laughs) anyway yeah without further ado thanks Mel see you later Bye. Bye. bye 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 Bye. Did I forget you? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard myself. That was tough.